This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Today, we're not talking about news. We're doing a fall book preview of our own design, of our own malevolence here. It's, it's, it's fall, buy, sell, hold. Rebecca picked out a list of the 14 mm-hmm. most interesting, buzziest new books of the fall. And we're going to buy, sell, and hold them as if we were, as if they were stocks. Meaning, basically, you think something is going to, if you think something's going to do better of its expectations, sort of out there in the world, you buy it. If you think it's going to do about what people would expect, you hold. And you think if it's going to do lower than that, you would sell. So if you think the price is going to go up, you buy. If you gonna, you know, it's about right, you sell. Or excuse me, you hold. And if you think it, the price is going down, you sell. So this is not meant to be, I don't think, a, well, we could talk about this, a uh, prediction of quality. Most of these we haven't read. In fact, I haven't read any of them. I think Rebecca's read one of them. I've read a couple. A couple on your list. Um, so we're not really talking about quality of the book. That actually may not have any relevance uh, whatsoever to how well it does in terms of sales or award season or basically making a mark in the wider book reading uh, culture and then culture at large if something gets big enough. Um, did I explain that, Rebecca? Right? Yeah. Are we playing the same game? <laughs> we are. I'm relieved okay. because we did not discuss the details of buy, sell, hold when we decided right. to do this. We both took it as something that we understand um so i'm glad that we actually do (laughs) understand it that would have this would have been an interesting first couple of minutes otherwise yeah so we're going to get into in a minute before we do that uh, let's take a break for a sponsor today's episode is brought to you by harper muse publisher of troubled waters troubled waters is an intimate portrait of two generations a granddaughter and a grandmother coming to terms with what it means to be family black women and alive in a world on fire in heartfelt lyrical prose mary and nace hegler weaves an unforgettable story of the climate crisis black resistance and the enduring power of family Narrated by Janice Abbott-Pratt and written by climate justice writer Mary Anise Hegler, the Troubled Waters audiobook is available everywhere May 7th. It follows Corinne as she plans to stage a dramatic act of resistance and peels back the scabs of her family wounds and puts her safety in jeopardy. Both grandmother and granddaughter must bring their unspoken secrets into light to find a path to healing. Known for her essays that dissect and interrogate the climate crisis, drawing heavily on her personal experience as a black woman with deep roots in the South, Mary Anais Hegler brings us her first work of fiction titled Troubled Waters. Make sure to pick it up. Thanks again to Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters, for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Taming Seven is an epic and unforgettable love story in the international best-selling and TikTok phenomenon, The Boys of Tom and Series from Chloe Walsh. So Tommen's cheekiest lad, Jared Gibsey Gibson, has always been a comedian, but inside he is haunted by events of the past and he uses humor to cope, hiding his true self from the world. Then you have Claire Biggs, who is the epitome of sunshine. She's always loved Gibsy, her brother's friend and her favorite neighbor. She also has always seen a side to him that no one else seems to notice, and she becomes determined to tame her wild at heart childhood best friend. 
So The Boys of Tommen series is an internationally best-selling YA romance series that has taken TikTok by storm. It's perfect for readers looking for new adult slash crossover romance, dual point of views, friends to lovers, marathon worthy TikTok books, and angsty tearjerkers. Taming Seven is published today and it's the fifth book in the series. So make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. All right, I'm leading off and I'm going with, I think, which is the, the most gold plated of the stock, the book stocks that we're evaluating today. Ah, That's coming the, in hot. The Water Dancer by Taniasi Coates, which comes out September 24th from One World, which is an imprint of Penguin Random House. It's set during slavery. Well, let me go back. Coates, so Coates is the selling point, the A number one selling point here. Between World and, we, World and Me sold like gangbusters. He is one of the few, I would say, legitimate public intellectuals we have cooking. Is that mm, fair? I mean, I you think could probably, so. You're, if you're going to make a Mount Rushmore of the uh, living public intellectuals in America, I think Coates has to be in that discussion for it. He's got great literary credibility, won the National Book Award for nonfiction for Between the World and Me. That book could have been written a different way as a novel, very readable. Um, mm-hmm. It was written as a letter to his son about the state of being a black man in America, his own experience, could have been an epistolary novel, kind of read like one. Um, I have, you know, he's making the move to fiction for the first time. I have less trepidation about that than you might think out of a straight-up nonfiction writer, just because that that book did read, had a, had nar- the narrative nonfiction quality of that I think translate pretty well into a novel. This book is about a, a 12-year-old boy who's living during the times of slavery, who can, I mean, I don't want to spoil too much. This one in the, in the, in the descriptions, um, he has maybe some magical powers about being able to see things that are there or are there or elsewhere, becomes usable. He decides he wants to try to escape with a, a young woman, um, and they, you know, try to make use of the Underground Railroad. Um, a good hook, a um, little magical realism, the reviews so far have been very, very good. And so I'm going to hold on The Water Dancer <laughs> by Don Yossi Coates. It felt like I was going to buy right. I'm going to tell you why I'm going to hold. I think the expectation here is at the very least like finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Like I think mm, that's a mm-hmm. that's performed to expectation. And I'm just not buying anything at that expectation knowing with the vagaries of culture. My concern would be do the people who bought Between the World and Me fall him over into a slave narrative? We just had a Pulitzer Prize winning book called The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. It's not the same. I mean, and there can be multiple books about the same thing. I just wonder if that affects, like, am I going to read another book about this? Is our prize juries going to read uh, award another book that's magical realism, historical sort of fantasy-ish qualities? That would give me pause about buying it. But I think the book is going to be good. I think it's going to be in the discussion for the best books of the year. But I think the expectations are already so high that I think I can only hold it at this point. What do you think about that? You know, I am I wavered a lot between hold and buy, but I'm going in on buy um, okay. for a couple of reasons. One being that Coles, like I don't think that ta Coates needs to ride on Colson Whitehead's um 
coattails, but these are excellent coattails to come in on that we are beyond just novels about like straight up sort of direct novels that mm-hmm. deal with ideas about the Underground Railroad and America's racist slavery past, but taking them into interesting and challenging genre places um, is something that's happening now and that's really fascinating i think Coates can do it he got great mentoring on this i've read a couple interviews with him where he talked about the first couple passes at the book and like Mm -hmm. sending it to michael shabon who was like dude this is not fiction um so he got good input i agree i think the book is going to be very good in contention for best books of the year both from readers and from prize juries but i also think it's gonna sell especially when it hits paperback and i don't know if paperback sales are in contention for this game but i decided that they were um that when it hits paperback and it's really eligible for book club discussion um these are the kinds of stories that book clubs like to take apart um, and they do very well in paperback so i'm i'm buying tanahasi coats those are high expectations but i think he can meet them yeah i should say too you know how stock uh, analysts do this like they'll they'll buy sell hold entire sectors i'm selling the sector of literary fiction which i think this is <laughs> i mean just in general i mean we look at book sales this year we've talked about it a million times before yeah there hasn't been a big this is literary fiction with the, you know, a Just fantasy, magical fiction. realism yeah. twist, but I think it's largely, you know, this is an old fashioned that has a twist on the side. This is, I think, seems like to me it's going to be most literary fiction. And I think it's a category as a genre of it itself. People aren't interested in that. Coates is a political writer, though. Maybe that mitigates that to some degree. But I think the, the, me- the meta trend of selling more traditional literary fiction applies here as well. Also considering I'm paying a relatively high sort of Q rating price for the book already. So, but I, I, I could be wrong. I wouldn't, if I'm going to be wrong, I think I am going to be wrong on the, up, on the, on the downside that is like, you're going to, that your analysis will be more right. Um, I'd be very surprised if it tanks, the, 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 the trade reviews are bad and it, you know, it mm-hmm. debates at number 17 on the hardcover fiction list and then disappears. I really can't see that happening, but, you know, that's a possibility. Yeah, I think it's going to come out of the gates hot because of name recognition, um, because a lot of people are anticipating it. But I think it's going to cross over into general readers and into readers who are doing that thing in a bookstore where they're just picking up a thing and looking yeah. for a good book who aren't aware of Ta-Nehisi Coates. He has a great name, and I do think people are going to follow his nonfiction readers are going to be curious about this and follow him over to fiction but I also think this is a breakout moment where he's going to find a bunch of new readers who pick up this book and go into it without any knowledge of him as one of our great public thinkers do you think when we should we do a follow-up to this episode in like February to see if we were oh right? yes is that in, we hadn't talked about that before but let's put a pin in that or like we'll do a, mid-year next year of like how did we do yeah, <laughs> yeah I, yeah, I yeah. guess when the Pulitzer's are anna- the Pulitzers are announced in April. I think maybe that would be the time mm-hmm. to say how we did on fall. We didn't do the full year. I'm not sure. Well, maybe Normal yeah. People by Sally Rooney. Like, what from this year already? That's a different conversation. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. But we could at very <laughs> least come back and, and look at our own ratings um, and see how we did. Okay, you're next. We got to get moving here. We can't spend that time on every uh, title, but that's a big one. So Yeah, that was fun to come out of the gate. Okay, I am starting with one straight out of my own personal wheelhouse, but I think it's widely applicable also, Unfollow by Megan Mm. Phelps Roper. Um, She is the granddaughter of Fred Phelps, who was the founder of Westboro Baptist Church uh, in Topeka, Kansas. Very famous, um, infamous perhaps is the better term for their picketing of all kinds of things um, anchored to their objection to the existence of gay people. 
she uh, grew up in the church. She believed in it. She picketed herself from, uh, she herself picketed, she didn't object to herself, um, from a very young age. She lived in essentially a compound in close proximity to her family. So she saw these people as the humans that they were, and she loved them and felt loved by them and believed that they were standing for the right things that everyone else in the world was wrong. And then in her mid to late 20s, came to understand the world and the church in a different way and ultimately broke away from it. And this is the memoir of leaving the church. Um, it is, I have read this one. It's, it comes out October 8th. It's um, honest. It is humble. It's apologetic um, in a way that is not judgment. It's not a, it's not judgmental in a mean way, but it shows some discretion and some judgment about the harm that her behavior and that the church has caused her personal desire to do better going forward and also how painful it was to make this decision ultimately to break away from everything that she had grown up thinking was true um, and to sever some very integral familial relationships in the process. I am buying. Mm. I don't know if I would have bought it if I hadn't read the book, Interesting. Um, but I have read like I think I would have held otherwise, but I'm buying because it is so because it's so good. It's not a gossipy tell all. There's real there's real staying power to the clear eyed way that she looks at her actions, at the church's actions, at how does a person like, how can you believe when you're in such a small minority that the thing you are doing is absolutely true and correct and worth the pain that you are visibly causing other people with not just the things you believe, but the way that you're expressing them? She really reckons with herself and uh, with the church's larger actions that in a way that I think is going to lend to like a great press tour, also great book club sales. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what kind of advance she got on this. I couldn't I couldn't find that, um, but I think th I think this is going to do very well. I'm trying to think of comps, um, the high side comp is something like Educated, right? Tara mm -hmm. Westover yeah. is a is a good comp. In that book, if you would have bought that and played this game with that and bought it, you would have made money, right? Like that book would oh, yeah. sell extremely well. There's going to be a movie coming out, so on and so forth. So I think that's the obvious comp. I, th my my concern, I think I would sell this just because I'm not sure people want to spend any time around that church. Mm. That would be, that's what, that would, I'm speaking out of the eye there. And again, I grew up very, very close to this church. It was around all the time. I don't want to touch this book with a 10 foot pole. I don't care what she's saying. So that's, I'm very, I'm very much like in that mode. So um, I'm going to um, be wildly anecdata-ish and sell just based on, I'm not sure that, people are going to be in to spend time and thinking and caring about someone who is a part of the church in this political moment could be wrong. Could the be the worms turned if you, you know, there's no, there's no convert like the zealot and there's especially no one that wants to read like the member of the church who the new zealot is preaching about. So I could be wrong on that side, but I think I would sell just cause I'm just not sure people want to, you know, spend mm. time in this world at all. But, um, that's, that's me. That's all super, right. yeah, that's interesting. I mean, the, the, I mean, I guess the, the, the contrary to that was the, the world in which Westover, like her family and the prepper, weird offshoot of mm -hmm. Mormonism she was a part of, tough hang. You know, like it's a, that's yeah. a tough hang too. Um, I'm not sure yeah, it's as it's, tough as the Westboro Baptist Church, but still a very tough yeah, hang. Yeah, and it's, people were in for that. Yeah, it's definitely a tough hang. I think because you know going in that there's redemption. Like she's going to leave. Right. Um, right. That 
that helps. Having spent time in the church and in the evangelical church, like this was in some places like just shy of triggering for me, mm-hmm. um, but in a, w- in a way that ultimately was worth it. Where I are you going next? I think your point is like if the book club, if this becomes a thing book clubs want to read, a, do like mm-hmm. that's, you know, it's an, I think it's a knife's edge. It could go either way. If they're into it, it could sell very well. There's a movie, whatever. It could be, it's like, I don't, I really don't want to do this. I don't care that you're sorry about it now. Um, I'm not sure. My next Find Me by Andre Asaman. Um, the follow-up to Call Me By Your Name, which was a very well-regarded and little-selling novel before it became mm-hmm. a critical darling as a movie, winning the best picture for best adapted screenplay, a movie I loved. I ate that up with a spoon. Um, it was beautiful and you know tender and tough and smart. Um, really what I didn't know I wanted to watch. And when I heard there was a sequel coming out, I was extremely excited. It's already going to be made into a movie, apparently. I think I saw a still with Timothée Chalamet, or however you say his name. <laughs> um, and the guy who plays the Winklevoss, I can't think of his name right now. Oh, Army Hammer. Mm-hmm. Um, they're like on a bus. And I was like, okay, it's going to be Elio and Oliver, the two main characters later in life. They get back together, and it's kind of like, I was thinking maybe it's kind of like a um, before sunset, before or before sunrise kind of oh, a thing. Yeah, We're going to uh-huh. get them over time. But in reading reviews of this, the reviews are good. You actually don't get Elio and, and Oliver until very late in the book, and it's sort of more of, it's a coda. It sounds like this is following Elio and his dad, Samuel's romantic middle term. Samuel played by... Um, Oh, I should have, I, I had the, Michael Stuhlberg, who was fantastic in the movie, kind of a, a kind, kind of the dad you would love to have, but who was in a relationship he was not happy about. Sounds like he gets out of that. And it's following them and sort of their midlife relationships when all I want is Elio and Oliver mm-hmm. walking around Europe talking and riding Just bikes like, again. Right. Holding hands, eating gelato. Yeah. And they yeah. don't have to be heavily after, heavily up ever after or even happy for now. I don't mind a tryst in Venice or whatever else it might be. So again, I think that's what people are looking for. The sequel, again, these are very speaking of anecdata. The original, the um, Call Me By Your Name, even with the movie, sold uh, three quarters of a million in print, which is very good. But not what not crazy for a book that was best adapted screenplay that people know of. I think this this property is a movie property that most people don't know was based on a book. Mm-hmm. Sequels in general tend not to do very well. So alas and alack, I am selling. Find me by Andre Asimov. I am also selling. I and I also loved the book and loved the movie. Mm-hmm. And Andre Achiman, one of my favorite writers um, for a collection of essays on travel uh, called Alibis. I really wanted to find a way to buy or at least hold, hold. this. <laughs> but, but I think that like I will be reading it. I'm going to buy it for myself. I will too. I will too. Um, Is that I, a bad in, as a counter indicator that we're <laughs> both saying we're selling or going to buy? No, literally uh, idiosyncratic buy. use cases. Yeah, right. I think going back to the well with beloved characters is a risky move because mm-hmm. expectations are so high. The thing that readers are longing for is you know so high and also so specific. And I think what you were saying is correct that the readers in general are going to want to go back into the world with those two young men in this very sort of dreamy and confusing and wonderful relationship that they had and all the ways that it opened up the ways that they thought about their life. It is suspicious to me that Achiman only decided to go back and write this book after the success of the film. I do not love that mm. like motivation to return to the world of 
a story. I kind of wonder what it does to the book. Put a but pin in that. We're going to come back to that okay. idea here yeah, yeah. in a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But as you said, like the reviews are very good. I think this is going to be a good book. I think that it will sell initially. Like this might show up at number 17 on the hardcover bestseller list the first week, but I don't think that there's going to be a long tail here. Um, I'm also not sure what kind of review or what kind of advance he got, but I suspect that it's not going to be as long-term um, successful as anticipated based on the success, which was very late in the game of Call Me By Your Name. So I'm also selling. I mean, on the experiential level, I think the sentences will be beautiful. Oh, like, yeah. Like, I mean, I'm very much looking forward to the experience of reading it, but it doesn't seem like it's doing a lot of the things that would capital. Weirdly, if he's trying to capitalize on the movie's success and whatever, it doesn't sound like the book is like, here's Elio and Oliver 10 years later at a reunion or something. They right. bump into, you know, like... You know, um, in an Ethan Hawke, Julie Delpy sort of a way, which I think would maybe move, move more units. Also maybe is a little more cynical than what he's doing here. He's looking at the father's love life and Elio apparently has a relationship with a woman that takes up a bunch of the book. It's also not a long book, which could help it. You know, it's not intimidating. I'm going to talk about length of some of these books here in a minute because I think that matters. And cover design, I should say, is something I took into account with Water mm. Dancer. It's a beautiful cover and a wonderful title. Um I've already forgotten the name of this book. Find me. So that's tough. <laughs> yeah, that's not great. Yeah, not great. All right, you're up. Okay, where do I want to go? Okay, I'm going to She Said by Jody Cantor and Megan Tuohy. It comes out September 10th. This is the memoir from the reporters who broke the Harvey Weinstein story that ultimately cracked open the Me Too movement, kicked off the Me Too movement. Um, couldn't find specific information about how much money they got paid for this deal, but it had to be a lot. Big. <laughs> had to be a big one. Um, they won the Pulitzer for their reporting work in 2018. There are no galleys of this book. Like, I don't know who to beg, borrow, or steal from to try to read it early. But this is not more about, it's not like more revelations of Me Too. This is their account of the reporting like their um, tiktok that's what they say in the business the tiktok of yes. how the story came to be yeah it, i think it's going to be important as a historical document a social document um i'm interested in what life is like as a reporter doing that kind of work um certainly books around the concept of me too are a big deal and there are a lot of voices to hear from but also like our cultural memory is short a lot of time has passed like a lot of things have occurred in the world um, since that first article about Harvey Weinstein and mm. since this kicked off I'm somewhere between hold and sell okay be because mm. I think there's a lot of juice behind some me too books I don't know that readers like that the broad general reader really cares about how that story got broken I hope I'm wrong um, Pick one. There's no line between hold and sell. Yeah, That's not part of the game. I'm going to hold. I'm holding. Hold. I'm fascinated. To see, I'm definitely interested in reading this book. I am issuing a cautious buy. Okay. Because I think the movie starring Jennifer Lawrence and Jessica Chastain, I don't know that it's being made. I'm just saying... The spotlight version of this. Book <laughs> I was like, wait, that's a thing. How did I not know? Could be incredible. Like, I think it could be a really great movie and give it a lot, lots of legs. And people would read that book. 
I think it really depends on how it reads. Does it read like bad blood? Does it read like mm. part of the game is finding out how it all got put together and oh my gosh? Because when bad blood came out, we already knew the thing was a sham. So it was really like, how did the story unfold? Is it that page turnery thriller almost quality here? I think the other thing that it has in it is juice about movie stars in Hollywood and people will sign up to read about that kind of a thing. Who's the names involved, everything else like that. I'm issuing a cautious buy. Um, I'm not betting a lot of money on this particular one, but I feel like we still have juice for this kind of thing. And frankly, and correct me if I'm wrong, we haven't had a big journalistic Me Too book yet. Have we had one? No, Has there we've, been one? we've had a bunch of adjacent ones. Yeah. Like, um, Rebecca Traister's book about women's anger was Me Too adjacent. There have been some other That's ones. It's like essays and opinion though. Like, yeah, not, you know like a reported book. Yeah. This is one where if we had galleys, I think I would feel more comfortable yeah. getting to either buy or sell, like really getting somewhere in the mm-hmm. in a solid position. But since we don't know, like, is it going to be juicy about celebrities or is it just going to be like, here's how we got people to talk to us about celebrities. I think that's a a big open question. If we start to see leaks um, that get turned into posts on the Washington Post about revelations that are coming from the book, like we've seen with the Trump books, Mm. that's a good sign that they're not giving us galleys because they're worried if it's good. It's that they want there to be bang. They want there to be impact about how this thing is put together. I'm not as worried about there not being galleys for a journalistic, you know, a reported book where part of the thing is the facts of the case is the, that's the sizzle. Um, But, Again, I could be wrong. Oh, yeah. I don't think the absence of galleys is about a concern. It's a, I think that's definitely like no one's getting previews of this book. You're going to have to buy it to find out, which means there will be, like you say, like Washington Post reporters trawling like airport Mm -hmm. bookstores and Walmarts before the release date, hoping somebody puts it out early. And all the, I mean, you can't, there's no podcast equivalent of air quotes, but all the air quotes in the world about leaks, about stuff coming out Mm -hmm. that appear in Bustle or BuzzFeed or something. Um, like that in the weeks up into publication. What's the pub date on that? I didn't write that one down. Do you have it in front of you? Oh, I did. And then I just deleted no, right. that all section right. from my notes. <laughs> it will be publishing sometime <laughs> from some publisher. Um, all right. We're going to get to the rest. We're, we've got 10 more to go. This is fun. I like this game. Um, but first, another sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated. 
So Negative Space by Jillian Linden follows a week in the life of an English teacher at a New York private school. At home, her children ask constant questions about mortality and her husband offers occasional counsel between Zoom calls. At school, something happens. She accidentally witnesses an ambiguous, possibly inappropriate interaction between a teacher and a student. But how can she be sure of what she saw? Negative Space is a portrait of a woman caught between the pressures of what's normal and what isn't, and examines what we owe the people who depend on us in a fractured and indifferent world. It's a debut novel and a short novel. It's perfect if you want something quick and easy to carry around, but it's also thought-provoking. It takes place during the pandemic, but it's not pandemic-focused, and it really just looks at everyday anxieties and low-threat situations that have high consequences. So make sure to check out Negative Space by Jillian Linden. And thanks again to W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated for sponsoring this episode. Okay, I'm up. All right. First off, she said Jody Cantor, Megan Chewy, September 10th. So not long to wait. Uh, my next one, I I was looking up how to say this, the new Rushdie Kishot. Mm, Do you have any guess? That's also what I've been saying in my brain. Um, the new Rushdie, which is a modern twist retelling of Don Quixote, all the meta things, um, that Rushdie likes to do. That's about culture and history and transcontinental and transculture culture. Um, yeah, it's so the, the main character here is a mediocre writer of spy thrillers who creates Quixote and falls in love with a TV star. And it gets very meta in a journey across America to prove worthy of her hand. So it's a writer writing a character who's being written by a writer who's referencing another character, which is meta. You know, Don Quixote itself is a meta text where mm-hmm. Cervantes claims to have found this text in the bazaar um, by Don Quixote, called Don Quixote by some unknown writer. Even for me who likes crap like this, this is a little much. This is a little <laughs> vertiginous. I'm, it's a tough beat, I think. Um, I like Don Quixote. I have liked Rushdie in the past. On the whole, I should say the re- the pre-reviews have been good, though it got a tough one mm-hmm. from the New York Times very recently. So there's a little recency bias there. It's also relatively long, of over 400 pages. I think Rushdie, the last few he's done, I've read and I haven't loved. I like Joseph Anton pretty uh, better than most, but it was more of a memoir. I'm selling a declining asset as much as I hate to sell the pitch of Rushdie doing a Quixote, a Quixote thing, which I like both of them, have liked both of them. I just, I don't think two rights, uh, two rights are making a wrong here. I'm selling Quixote by Salman Rushdie. I'm also selling and I'm going to dispute two rights. I think Rushdie's star is falling. There's been some Me Too-ish stuff. Don't love that either. Around him. Don't love that either. Um, this is the kind of book that publishing cares about or wants to care about and therefore wants to believe that readers will care about, wants to make readers care about. But you have like an author who I think is past his prime, both in terms of his reputation and the level of respect that he earns and also past his prime in terms of like, it's hard to keep delivering after you've done something like the satanic verses. And Rushdie did deliver after something like that for longer yeah. than most writers could. He really has had a remarkable career. But like, a modern take on Don Quixote is a tough pitch. In tough. Ge- <laughs> like in tough. general, very few readers care about Don Quixote, much less a modern take on it, especially by somebody whose star is 
falling. I don't know how much money Salman Rushdie got for this, but I'm going to guess it's way too much because of who he is and because of how publishing wants this to be a big deal. Every year there are books that are the publishing darlings that like when you step outside the publishing bubble, you realize normal people don't know about this book or care about it. Um, I think that this is going to be one of those. I don't see a way that this becomes a book that people are talking about six months from now, a year from now, 10 years from now. Um, So I'm selling. I think this has the potential of the ones that I've picked to have the greatest delta between the qual. It could be a really interesting, great book. Rushdie has that in him to do, and this could get pulled off, and still no one will care. Agreed. Um, I don't think. I don't think there's a world in which it's bad and people care. I think there is a very possible world which it's interesting and worth reading, and still people don't care. Quixote, having tried to teach it to students before, it's tough to do even when you're assigned to it. It's intimidating. It's up there with Ulysses mm-hmm. and Moby Dick as some of the most intimidating material in the western canon let's make that a french sounding title and that makes it better no this is very tough all the way around i think that it's a mistake in general to market a modern take on a certain big classic or classical work um, because it does feel so intimidating and limiting to writers like there are elements of the odyssey inside tyari jones's an american marriage but Nobody is like, hey, guess what? (laughs) You know, you have to understand the Odyssey in order to read this book. Um, I think maybe just the pitch of the novel itself as the plot would be more appealing Mm -hmm. than the pitch of this is a modern take on Don Quixote. And then here is the plot. Um, Publishing really overestimates interest in those things, unless we're talking about like Madeline Miller, who is queering classical works. And that's a whole other. That's a whole. And let's be honest. Song of Achilles was really good, but it didn't sell like gangbusters. Like Circe was a surprise. That right. book sold surprising, yeah. surprisingly well. Or, I mean, maybe back looking back at it now, but I think if, if we were doing this game with Circe by Madeline Miller, I'm holding at best mm-hmm. right there. Um, so anyway, that's, uh, that's a sell for me. All right, where are you going? Where do I want to go? I want to go to Imaginary Friend mm. by Stephen Chbosky. <laughs> This comes out October 1st. Chbosky is the author of the beloved Perks of Being a Wallflower, like the emo novel that defined a generation. Beloved by Rebecca Shinsky, too, I should say. Yes. I have so much fondness in my heart for that book that I cannot reread it because I'm really afraid it won't hold up. (laughs) I read it... um... While we've been since we've been doing this, because I was too old for it when it came out, and so I read it more of a historical artifact, like, mm. oh, this is a thing that people cared about. And I am who I am, so I I can't say definitively, but I felt like it held up okay. Good, um, okay, that's reassuring. And I enjoyed the movie. Did you enjoy the movie? I didn't see it for the same reasons. Oh, uh, well, that we we'll have to add that to Book Nerd Movie Club maybe at some point mm. to get back to that. Anyway, I'm, I've stepped all over. Imaginary friend. Chibosky. Okay, Here so huge huge name. Chbosky is a huge name, but it has been 20 years. Well, to a certain generation of readers, Mm. but it's been 20 years. This is a work of literary horror. Mm. It is 700 pages long. Brutal. Brutal. He got a $3 million deal for it from an auction. Indefensible. Yeah, from an auction that lasted a week and a half. Like, there was a bidding war for this book. You can find, like, the fawning interviews with the editor who acquired it, who talks about how he stayed up all night reading it, and the other people stayed up all night reading it, and everybody knew that this was going to be a hit. However, Publishers Weekly says it is, quote, long on words, 
but short on execution. It's not what you like to hear. Not what you want to hear. 700 pages for anything is an awful lot. Switching genres when you're known for like one very mm. specific mood is a that's a big swing. I think he could have had a good shot if he was if he were doing another kind of YA thing or something pitched to the people who loved Wallflower 20 years ago and are now approaching 40. Like, I am here for Stephen Chbosky's early midlife crisis novel. I would like to explore that. You're not going to get me for 700 pages of just about anything. I'm definitely not switching genres for him. That's way too much, way too many words. $3 million is way too many dollars selling this so hard and I'm very sad about it you're basically asking it to be like the passage Justin Cronin right Mm, at that mm -hmm. level you're asking it to be a very good selling Stephen King novel right for that kind of advance that's not easy to do and frankly I think it's even harder to do if you're coming at it from you're asking Chbosky people to come read it because I don't I don't think you can do that I don't think people read Perks of Being a Wallflower are all Chbosky stands they like that book right. but we haven't gotten anything in a million years there is no brand here no and you're not even capitalizing on what waning brand there is very tough sell that's a very long book I also would sell I would say the saving grace to a holder even to a buy is does Netflix say we've got a series here mm. like this in the, I think that in the golden age of that stage, we have to wonder if there's already hot and heavy auctions and a book scout saw it, maybe it gets picked up somewhere else. But even at that kind of advance, I don't know how a Netflix series um, coming along that's adapting a book does to book sales. Like we've heard about the, the condo there's have been some bumps, but there's now so many TV shows. Mm-hmm. We can't all possibly be reading the book based on all the TV we're watching. So there's somewhere there's diminishing returns. And that's asking this to be into a series and that people care about. It's just too much, you Rebecca. Know, Literary, also, horror, long, no brand narration, never been there before, tough <laughs> reviews. What do I have to hold on to here? It's also woman in an abusive relationship. Don't love it. Children in peril. Nope, out. Really tough sell. Okay, can I get, let's get out of this cell <laughs> business here. Okay, what do I got coming up next? Tell me, take me somewhere nice. I go, I'm going with, okay, Red at the Bone by Jacqueline Woodson, which is her new novel. And it sounds like, um, so it's a family in Brooklyn and things are going on. It's a literary novel. It's for adults. Um, I think I'm holding this only because I'm holding the, I'm holding to selling the category of literary fiction. <laughs> if I felt better about the sector, I might buy this. It's 202 pages. It's not very long, which I'm not sure is good for a book like this, which you kind of want for book clubs. I feel like book clubs like the 300 and up, like you give you something meaty to read. I'm sure it will be very good. I'm sure it'll be well-written. I'm sure it'll be emotionally powerful. It doesn't feel like... I don't know. I, I'm of two minds about this because it feels like it's in the Jackie Woodson vein, mm-hmm. which you think would be good, but I'm just not sure that people coming off, it was Brown brown Girl, Brown Stones. Oh, no, Brown Girl Dreaming. Brown Girl Dreaming. I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm getting them confused. Um, and then another Brooklyn, I don't know other, if either of those sold awesome. I think it'll be in line with previous Jackie Woodson titles, so that's why I'm holding it. But I will, by buying this, but I think in general, it doesn't sound like there's enough of a twist on it for it to break out of sort of the Jackie Woodson, you know, kind of what her, her brand and her, mm-hmm. her lane is. Um, so I don't think the sales will break out in any particular way either. So I'm holding, though I think it'll be good. Yeah. I want to read Brown Girl, Brownstones now. 
Oh, that's a book. You... It's it's a different. It's by oh. a different author. It's from the seventies. I okay. can't think of the name well, right now. I'll, I'm here for the I'll Jacqueline Woodson version of it too. Yeah, yeah. I am also holding for basically those exact same reasons. The Kirkus review of this book says that Woodson is at the top of her powers, and Woodson at the top of her powers is Very really good. something. I'm I am as a reader looking forward to beholding that. But I do think that the Jacqueline Woodson brand, at least as we know it exists in a narrow enough capacity that the books are, for for whatever reason, probably some of it has to do with the marketing dollars that publishers spend or don't spend, um, not breaking out in a really big commercial way. This will be critically excellent. Um, I don't know that it's going to do a lot of dollars, but I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. um, Brown Girl, Brown Stones by Paula Marshall. It came out in the late 70s, and it's a coming-of-age story about... um, uh, a girl in, that's uh, her family's from Barbados and they've immigrated to Brooklyn and it's the story of them immigrating. So it's not dissimilar. Also, the title is, um, as you can see, confused in my head. So that's right. <laughs> Jackie Woodson coming out this fall, looking forward to it. Um, but I think it's people looking forward to Jackie Woodson that are going to buy this book. Agreed. All right, you're up. Okay, I am going with The Secrets We Kept by Laura Prescott. This is coming out on September 3rd. It's a good pitch, Jeff. It's the tale Mm -hmm. of secretaries turned spies who Mm. were secretaries in the CIA involved in the CIA's plot to infiltrate Soviet Russia during the Cold War involving Dr. Zhivago, the novel. Mm -hmm. I mean, look... I'm like the frickin' hunchback of Notre Dame ringing bells over here. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't be hitting the Carillon any harder. It's a really good pitch. Great pitch. Huge book deal. Mary, two, uh, two million dollars. Two million dollars on this book deal. Okay, I'm holding, and here's why. That's not bad for that. That's not bad for that. It's kind not. Of it's not these. Stories, both fictional and non-fictional, about or you know, fiction inspired by true life, historical fiction and non-fiction, about like sort of the untold story of things that women did that were critical mm-hmm. to major moments in history. Like this is a trend I am all the way on board for. There have been some great books, both of fiction and non-fiction, about it. I think people are interested in the idea. The Cold War, though, by definition, is like not super action-y. It's also not the thing we know a ton about. Um, I have read the book, and it's good, but it's also not like juicy. It's a little, and it's put together in a, it's a liter, it's put together in a literary way. Um, I think that most average readers, like your book club target audience, doesn't know about Doctor Zhivago. I had to learn some things about Dr. Zhivago. Doesn't know about Boris Pasternak. There's a 200,000 copy initial print run. Also, how are you going to make back the $2 million advance on 200,000 copies? I think there's book club potential. I think there's potential here for sales. Maybe it'll get like the Reese Witherspoon bump. I could see that happening, but I'm holding. I'm cautious. Uh, I'm sorry to say I'm selling this. Mm. And the, the reason is two words. No, Dr. Chivago. No one cares. <laughs> no one cares. Yeah, I honestly think that if the synopsis for the book stopped at secretaries turned spies during the Cold War, yeah. you could sell more of them than if you included the Dr. Chivago stuff. It's just a tough beat because I think it's probably an interesting book. But if the MacGuffin, which is stuff about Dr. Chivago, is like, oh, yeah, that's... 
what percentage of people who would walk into Powell's would you say, have you heard of Dr. Fargo? Yes. Say one more thing about it. Could say anything about it. I couldn't have said anything about it until earlier this uh, th- week. There you go. That is, that's why I'm selling this. Um, I bet I, I'm going to read it. Um, I'm sure it would make a, a wonderful like three-part annotated series. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just don't see any way where... like. Is Netflix going to get pick it up because it's about doc- they're they're doing stuff around Doctor Shivago? I think you're right. Secretaries are in spies where they're just like stealing Russian secrets and giving them back to you know um, Quantico or whatever would work. But like, I think the Shivago thing doesn't do anything. In fact, maybe hurts it. But Pastor Next, an interesting guy, he turned down the Nobel f- Prize for gosh sakes. He's an it's an interesting story that no one cares about. Mm. Hence myself. You um, know, and if only because of the advance. If this was your sort of run of the mill is, is being released by Norton and it was like a $70,000 advance, I'd be buying the snot out of it because I think <laughs> there's a chance it, it, gets, it's, it <laughs> overperforms that. But I can't see it performing to a $2 million. Like, I'm gonna, I, the remaindered copies are going to be available at the Strand. That's all I'm saying. You know, I'm just remembering as we're talking about it that I think the initial reason this book hit my radar at all was sitting at one of the publisher luncheons at Book Expo this year. The bookseller I was sitting next to was like, okay, all the books that the publisher is presenting at this luncheon are great, but have you read The Secrets We Kept yet? Mm. And she was telling me how great she thought it was and how sellable it is. And so I also think somewhere in my process here is this might have hand selling potential, recommendation potential. Hi, well, because secretary. <laughs> Terry's turn spies. And they and, stop there. Okay. All and right, like maybe. maybe you're maybe you buy it. Like I'm buying this for my mother-in-law for Christmas because it's enough intrigue and also safe enough to like I can give you this and it won't offend your sense. Well, that'll be the test. If you get into your mother-in-law's hands and she passes on to somebody else, then it could do okay. Yeah. I'm just I'm stay just tuned. Not sure. I'm just <laughs> not sure. All right. Um I'm going my next pick or your pick that I got to uh do the, the background on Olive Again by Elizabeth Strout coming out October 15th. Follow-up to her Pulitzer Prize-winning Olive Kitteridge, um, which is a wonderful book. Uh, came out, boy, it's been a while now, 10 years, something 2008. like 2008. Wow, yeah, 11 years. Um, Olive Kitteridge is a wonderful character, one of the great modern American literary characters. She's, she's feisty. She's not lovable in sort of the you know, old woman next door with a heart of gold. Once you get to know her, she'll make you really awesome brownies. She's tough. She's a tough hang. We're going to use that's our phrase of the day. (laughs) Um, But she's trying, you know, she lives in this small town and she's trying to come to terms with being who she is in the midst of this town where everyone knows each other and kind of fighting against some small town cliches. Um, And on the upside, I should say, not the the small town cliches that are bad, but like the um, Grover's Corners, Stars Hollow kind of cliches. Um, and Strout is really good at this. I'm buying this for two reasons. One is Strout's great. That book did very well. But in the meantime, her other books have sold extremely well. This is Lucy Barton, sold really well. I saw it week after week after week in the middle of the hardcover fiction list. I think it's very, very, very attractive to the kind of person who buys a lot of hardcover fiction at their independent bookstore, which is a 50 plus year old woman um, and likes to read about a cantankerous, difficult, fascinating character that's in the same demo by a master at writing these character studies that are very readable. Um, You feel like you're in the hands of a master 
Um, and it's not sort of very challenging artistically, but humanly very challenging and interesting, which I think is a, that's, that's, there's a lot of value as a value play. I'm moneyballing this. This is a buy from me for All of Again uh, um, by Elizabeth Strout. So we're making an exception to the rule of selling literary fiction here. Well, the, only because she's done it several times. I would be very, if she hadn't written a book since All of Kitteridge and I had no data, I would sell. But apparently there are people out there waiting for Elizabeth Strout novels, <laughs> which I was shocked by, but <laughs> fool me twice, yeah. right? Like I've been wrong about this, both books that came after All of Kitteridge. And I, I'm going to be wrong on the other side. Let's try <laughs> let's, being wrong in a different way for a change. That's why I'm buying All of Again by Elizabeth Strout. All right, I'm holding because... Okay. Olive Kitteridge itself, like the sales on that weren't great. It didn't appear on the Amazon bestseller list in the year that it was published. It was number 34 the next year after it won the Pulitzer. So she did get critical acclaim and the sales boosted there. There was the HBO series with Frances McDormand, which, I mean, obviously excellent, but how many people are making that connection? Like the book wasn't that well reviewed. It didn't make the New York Times 100 notables the year it was published, aside from, you know, winning the Pulitzer. Um, so the Pulitzer was really the thing that the book did. All of Kittredge itself is short, but I think going back to the well on a book, like this is a sequel. So there's a barrier to entry of, do I need to have read all of Kitteridge first? Like if I'm browsing in Barnes and Noble and I pick this up, am I going to buy it? Even if I haven't read all of Kitteridge, can I go back in or do I feel like I have to read the other book first? I think there's a barrier there, but I agree with all of the things that you said about Elizabeth Strout's target demo and her demonstrated success since Olive Kitteridge. So I think there's a chance. This is also longer than Olive Kitteridge by like yeah. a good amount. The first book, the novel is really short. Olive again is 300-ish pages. So I'm holding. I think it's going to, it will perform. I don't think we're going to like have our socks knocked off. I think about Olive Kitteridge too. Still, it's still on those paperback favorites tables. And anytime you can coattail on something that gets put on a paperback favorites table for the next 20 years, not bad. Not bad. Not this bad. should be our, our old friend bundling. Get Olive again and 25% off of Olive Kitteridge. a really, really fascinating idea. I love it. Um, okay, you're up. Okay. I'm going to In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado. It comes out November 5th. She is the author of Her Body and Other Stories, which was a collection of short stories that was shortlisted for the National Book Award in 2017. This then that book was a critical darling. This is a memoir also published by Grey Wolf, a nonprofit press. And she's a fascinating person. Mm -hmm. She is great in interviews, interesting everywhere you can find her online. This feels to me like a memoir of the moment. It's about the mental and physical abuse that she suffered from a girlfriend. So like, that's a tough hang. This is a difficult, difficult subject, but queer representation really matters. Stories about intimate partner violence and acknowledging that intimate partner violence does not just happen in hetero relationships between cis men and cis women is very important. And the telling of women's stories and women's experiences is really big. Like this is kind of a Me Too story, but it's not about Me Too at the hands of a man. Um, I think it's going to be masterfully told, difficult to read. The subject matter is going to rule out a lot of people from the jump, but it's going to be a good book because it's published by Grey Wolf which is nonprofit, the advance could not have been huge. Same thought, had the same thought. This is going to move. If it moves, it'll move by word of mouth. And I think it's going to move. I am buying. I'm buying too. Same reasons. I think she's an interesting person. I think the pitch is really interesting. I'm sure she will do it 
I'm trying to think of the right word. I think she will do it carefully, interestingly, and alluringly. Like mm. it'll be, it'll feel intimate and like you're inside of the relationship. It's this hefting. She's going to give you access to her own feelings, but also what's going on there. I think that's very attractive. Like you said, Grey Wolf probably is not giving a high six-figure advance. So I'm, we're sort of buying low to some degree. Like we're not spending a whole lot to get our eggs in this particular basket. Um, well, Grey Wolf also... They're kind of like, they're, they're the nonprofit, but they're kind of like a small market team that they win prizes. Like they'll mm-hmm. go out and win the poetry or nonfiction or fiction awards in major categories. Um, they have extremely good taste. Um, so that's why I'm buying as well. I'd love this to be a, a sleeper hit yeah. um, that gets turned into something that, you know, people really start talking about. Um, are you going to, I don't know if I'm going to read this though. I don't, lo- it's tough. I don't know, man. I'm, I'm really interested and I'd like to, but I'm not sure I want to spend time in that. I'm going to need some reviews and some people yeah. who know to tell me some things. About I'm it going I in. Up, I'm going to read know. it. I really hope that this will be a sleeper hit and specifically in the way of like, I want this book to end up in all of our mother-in-law's hands in their right. book clubs with their other nice middle, late middle-aged ladies who have potentially never considered this kind of experience from a queer person before um like may all of carmen maria machado's efforts succeed i might be rooting for this book more than i'm rooting for anything else on that's our a list. great that's a great question i think i am too i guess i for i'm rooting for she said to be good because i really want a good ver- i love the the i love a, a journalist newspaper story i just mm-hmm. i can't get enough of them and a good version of that about that story, I would be I'd be thrilled to read. So that one, and but this one is a close second to that. Um, I'm saving my big one for the last. It looks like you are too. Mm-hmm. I know. I know. We each know what we have coming. Uh, my penultimate pick uh, or you know, my assignment: The Body by Bill Bryson, which is I think mining what Bryson does best. My favorite Bryson is uh, a short history of nearly everything. It's also the best-selling Bryson. It was my entry to Bryson, in which he basically spends a chapter doing the intellectual history of a major scientific field, whether it's geology, astronomy, or biology, anthropology, and sort of taking it from the inception of that field to basically the best of our knowledge to right now. He's insouciant, he's funny, he's curious, he's smart, but not like showingly so, which I think is interesting for Mm -hmm. the kind of book and audience this hits. This is him doing basically what he did with that, but to the body. How, what we understand about it, how we came to understand it, what different organs do, the wonders, mysteries, quirks, and disgustingness that is the human being in the Bryson voice, I think is a thousand percent a home run. This is a buy. The only, th- the, my residence, I couldn't find anything. I don't know what Bryson gets as an advance now. I have no idea oh, good question. what the, you know, what, what price I'm paying. But assuming I'm not paying $3 million, which I could be, I mean, Bryson is a name, has a long backlist. I think this is going to be a big, um, Christmas book. This is a book that's going to do extremely well on audio. Um, all the Bryson is really good on audio. It's the best of Bryson. His travel logs, which kind of got him started, I think age very poorly now because he's sort of doing social commentary on things he doesn't really know that much about. But when he has some time to do some work and sit down and think of it as sort of just a human in the world. Like his book on the history of the house was really interesting. His book on Shakespeare was a short book, and it was really interesting. Where he gets time to sit down and sort of do the wallowing you would like to do as a curious person, I think is him is his best. It's a great subject. I'm buying this. I'm buying this all the way. I'm buying it, but I don't want to be buying it. Why? Why? 
It's I think you're absolutely right. This is like the dad book of the holiday season. Mm. I have enjoyed Bryson. I do think he's funny with the body in specific. Like it's hard to out Mary Roach, Mary Roach. And she I feel like we've been down some of these paths before about like, look at the body, look at how it's cool, look at how it's gross and weird. I feel like I'm going to I'm going to need reviews on this before I go in for myself because Bryson early reviews are good. I don't know if I mentioned that the early reviews are good. All right. Bryson as an individual and then like a late middle aged white guy as a category addressing bodies just makes me feel like I'm going to read it with my fingers over my face. There's a landmine. There's a landmine. Yeah. Maybe more than one. Right. And he doesn't have the greatest track record about like some of the jokes that the earlier books have told about. They haven't aged well. Yeah. 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 Sunbird country, other things. Right. They haven't aged well. So like this could be great. It needs to be like woke enough um, and aware enough of the potential pitfalls of being a man writing about bodies it also needs to consider women's bodies mm-hmm. in its discussion of biology i don't know if it does or not i haven't seen it but i'm i'm wary about like the experience of the book i don't think that's going to keep it from selling so i'm buying it for its commercial value but i just am a little about it yeah and bryson is this he's like he inhabits this weird sort of I don't know, affectation space between CBS Sunday Morning and John Hodgman, right? Like, it's not yeah. quite anodyne, milk toast as CBS Sunday Morning, but he's not quite as, like, actively weird as Hodgman, which it makes a cover that covers a lot of waterfront, though, to be right mm-hmm. between those two things and tends to make for an enjoyable, um, you know, kind of a good for all seasons kind of a read. Probably among the books here, if you're buying a book for someone blind, mm. Not like they're blind, but like you don't know anything about them. Could you, would, is there a safer pick than the body? Yes. What? We'll get to it later. Oh, I said I was on a tee and I didn't even know I was a golf ball on a tee for you there. Cause I, we've talked about this before. Oh, how the table has turned. I just got hit by, I just got hit hard by a driver down the middle of the fairway. Wow. I never, okay. I never get to be the driver. Oh, wow. Okay. Always well, the tee. Woof. Wasn't paying attention there. <laughs> Holy Moses. That, that, there you go. Come on. Come on, Arnold Palmer. S- step up to the tee box. Oh, you want me to just take this one now? I think we have well, this, to. Isn't your last one? Or no, you two more? we got two more. I got two oh, more. Oh, no. All save right. it. Save it. Save All it. Right. Save it. Save it. Okay. So we'll just tease that one. We're going to yeah, end yeah. on my big, that big pick. Yeah. Um, so my next pick is How We Fight for Our Lives by Saeed Jones. It comes out October 8th. He um, previously has had you know, pretty good success as poetry goes with his poetry collections, known at least in internet and publishing circles for his work on BuzzFeed. He writes about race and sexuality, being a young black gay man with real vulnerability. His sort of reputation sits at the intersection of literary culture and pop culture. The early reviews for this are pretty good. Um, I've seen some really excellent ones. I've seen a couple hesitant ones, but for the most part, really good. I don't know how much of an advance he got for this. I don't know that he has a big enough established audience to make this book a hit just on the size of like people who know his name. I don't know that Saeed Jones is a big name, but Morgan Jerkins had a breakout with I like I had the same sort of questions about Morgan Jerkins's book two years ago. And she hit the bestseller list and has been doing very well. Um, and I think has become recognizable in that process. I think there's a really good shot that Saeed Jones can do the same thing. There's a hunger for this kind of 
memoir. There's a hunger for voices from marginalized communities. Saeed Jones, is he's an incredible writer who writes about difficult things and difficult personal experiences in a very powerful way. Like the book, I think, is going to be good. I'm very confident there. There's a lot of upside potential. So I'm going in. I'm buying. I agree with everything you say, except I'm going to hold only because I feel like the the anticipation is pretty high already. Mm. Like, I don't know enough about like how you know, he's got a, a pretty big per, a big following on Twitter. You know, he works at BuzzFeed. He lives in New York as part of the New York literary sphere. Does that mean anything or not? I tend to think that kind of thing tends to be overestimated, right? Like because mm-hmm. people know Saeed Jones and people who care about books know Saeed Jones. That doesn't necessarily translate into sales um across the country sometimes it does sometimes it doesn't you know it seems like it could be in the same vein as between the world and me like it Mm -hmm. has a similar kind Mm -hmm. of pre-publication vibe happening um i think there's going to be i don't know much about the i didn't do much about the synopsis like is it a straight up memoir is it memoir plus essay and opinion i don't really know but it feels to me like it could have that kind of a um trajectory but i feel like i'm already buying pretty high because I know the name. I know people who know books know the name. It's getting starred reviews. I have high hopes for it, but I think I'm already, those are baked in at this point. Mm. So that's why I'm holding. Okay. So it's kind of like we're saying the same thing, but uh, maybe just have slightly different expectations for yeah, it, yeah. what it does in addition to that. All right. Um, I mean, this is probably... <laughs> we saved the hardest ones for last. Probably the big book event of the fall. I Question think we're mark? supposed to think so. I think we're supposed to think that the Testaments by Margaret Atwood. Oops, I'm just I'm putting in the wrong links. I kept that so I could keep the publication date in front of me. Um, by Margaret Atwood is supposed to be the big literary event, literary event of the fall. It's getting the print run of a big literary event of the fall. Mm-hmm. In fact, the big literary event of the year, a 500,000 copy first run, which is, to put in some perspective, <laughs> big, um, that's a term of art. Um, no, no review copies, so can't no. say anything about it. I, I feel like I have to comment a little bit that I have a similar feeling about Atwood that I do about Rushdie, maybe less so that it's kind of a declining acid and sort of the last, I'm not sure... I just haven't been sure about her last few years of, of work and commentary. I just don't know what I'm going to get with, with that, with that wood out of the Testament at this point. I think it, and on the whole, you'd be smart to sell all sequels just in general. You, you wouldn't go broke Mm -hmm. selling sequels. It has the TV show, which has now exceeded the timeline of the handmaid's tale. The Testaments is 15 years after the end of the handmaid's tale. So I guess it's right now going to be after the end or wherever we are with the show. I haven't seen it. I just did a little homework to see where I am. I think it's like 50, it's either five or 15 years after Offred's last appearance of The Handmaid's Tale, the book. Right, that's what I'm saying. And yeah. then the move, the TV show is like after that somewhat. Right, right. And so we're skipping ahead some amount of time. So I have a little bit of where am I in space and time, even if I'm a, a follower of The Handmaid's Tale property. I have to sell. Just I just have to sell based on sequels and that high of an expectation. And it's not really easily connectable to what the heart of the IP property is, which is the TV show right now. The, the TV show is the, the heart of the property, not the book. And it's somewhat after that, 
I'm just not sure. I, the, the, the risk is too high for me to do anything but sell at this point. The, the 500,000 copies is so much, and it might not be good. And I'm sure the advance was huge. I'm very nervous, Rebecca. Me should I, am too. I, should I be this nervous? No, I'm very nervous too. Um, okay. I'm also selling. The deal was just announced last fall that the sequel to The Handmaid's Tale was coming yeah. out this fall. We don't know when that deal got made, but the fact that there's only been a year between, hey, this book is going to exist and the existence of the book makes me worried just like in general. <laughs> Right. Um, there are no galleys. It's being circulated on a need to read basis is the direct. I don't like that from a piece that I found. Right. Um, and like the publish, like one of her publishers is on the need to read list because of course he is, mm-hmm. but like no one else is. It raises all these hairy questions about which versions of the story are canon because of the complicated fact of the TV show exceeding the timeline of the books now. This is just a huge deal. As you said, there's 500,000 copies in the U.S. print run. The initial Canadian print run where Atwood hails from is 200,000 copies. Mm. It's a, this is a globally coordinated release between like a ton of different locations. Usually that does not happen. A book from an author who has a bunch of different territories, the book might come out in different territories on different yeah, days. Global might... lay down date. That's like Harry yeah. Potter stuff. Right. It's a global lay down date. This is a huge deal. She didn't have any interest in writing the book until the TV show happened, but it's not connected to the TV show. As you said, like I think Atwood's value as a literary asset has decreased over the last couple of years. I don't know that the general reading public is aware of the ways that she has misstepped both both in her and maybe doesn't care I mean, and maybe yeah that's and good right for and the right, right the exactly and maybe they don't care um like that margaret atwood is not as woke as we would like a writer whose stories address feminism and violence against women in these ways to be but like the handmaid's tale does not address people of color and the testaments needs to like how this book performs is going to hinge on what happens on day one when people read it and start talking about it on the internet and given the ways that Atwood has presented herself in interviews recently I'm not confident that the book is going to do the things that it needs to do to really serve readers um Another one where like if you haven't watched the show and you haven't read the first book, you have a big barrier to entry to picking this one up for all of those sequel reasons. Um, I am I think the publisher can get away with the fact that there are no galleys because this is such a big book and they wouldn't want leaks about what happens in the story. But I'm suspicious that also it's not very good. And that's why people don't get to read it. I just don't think that there is a way that this meets reader expectations in a satisfying way and definitely sales expectations I'm selling. I just can't see a world in which, I mean, that many copies, you have to get people who don't normally care about books to pick it up. Right. And I know The Handmaid's Tale has been in the news because of the TV show and people are dressing up like handmaidens, which is very cool. But because of the world we live in in streaming service, do we know how many people are watching The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu? Like, is it a thing you could talk to like, people you meet at a Mm. dinner party i think i don't think so i know it's on tv but what percentage of them were actually going to have uh, picked you know looked at the 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 show itself and then know the book is coming up i'm just very nervous i think like rushti atwood could write a really interesting book i'm not saying it's impossible by any stretch of the imagination i think if it's a really interesting book it still has a long way to go to meet expectations. Mm-hmm. I still think that's an uphill climb for there. 
and I just I've got too I've got too too much uncertainty yeah. to do anything but sell. And really, I'm I'm not even close to holding. I don't think for, yeah. for this. I would right. love to be pleasantly love surprised. Love to be wrong. Um, yeah, I'd love to be wrong about this for a lot of reasons. And maybe this is a good time to tease that later in the season, yes. we are going to do one of these bonus episodes about the Handmaid's Tale phenomenon, about the book, about the show, about the Testaments after it comes out. We will have read it, so we'll be mm-hmm. talking about it. We can assess whether we were, we can get to that one sooner than yeah, next April, so. <laughs> whether we, we were right or not on on this. But um, I'm really going to be you know, biting my fingernails about how that book goes. Take us home with the book that kind of got us rolling in this direction yeah. uh, from the beginning. For those of you listening to the episodes um, up to this point, you won't be surprised to hear you the, know, last, uh, the last draft pick. I think you unintentionally set me up for this when you said that a book that has a print run of 500,000 copies and gets such a big deal around it has to be a book that attracts people who aren't Mm. typically readers. And I think this book is going to do that. It's The Starless Sea by Aaron Morgenstern. It comes out November 5th. It has been eight years since The Night Circus, which has sold three million copies Mm. in that time. That's a lot of copies. That book is beloved. Morgenstern's imagery and the way that she creates a world is I think pretty singular in the kind of writing that she does. It, there's nothing like the Night Circus. We have been doing this That's for true. eight years and spent literally all eight of those years having people write in asking us for a read alike to the Night Circus. And there's kind of nothing. That book yeah. really stands on its own. Aaron Morgenstern did something. A lot of people are waiting for the next Aaron Morgenstern book. I have read this book. It is a line drive down the middle of books for people who love books. Mm. It's been called, like reviews are calling it, you know, like a love letter to bibliophiles. And you don't have to read a lot of books to think of yourself as a person who loves books. You just have to like the experience of reading a book. And I think that for people who, if they're going to read one book in 2019, it's going to be The Starless Sea. This book (laughs) is going to do really well having from the author of the night circus on the cover of the book or wherever it appears in displays that's going to remind readers who are going to pick it up this thing is going to sell in barnes and noble it's going to sell through the holiday season it's going to be a gift you can package it with the night circus to it someone. is beautiful it's, it's beautiful a beautiful book as object and so is the night circus yeah it's going to be a good impulse book for people who are like browsing in Hudson News and are like, oh, I didn't know the author of The Night Circus had a new book out because I'm not a person who pays a ton of attention to books, but I liked The Night Circus and I've been thinking about it for eight years and here it goes. I'm in. I think it's going to perform very well. I'm buying this thing all the way. I'm holding. Ah, that's surprising. Only because... People who like books, are they enough to warrant the kind of advance we're talking about here? Mm. Doesn't it have to be a breakthrough? Like, do you, do you need Night Circus? Do you need to repeat Night Circus sales to, to, to come through on a hold here? Because mm. I think you might not do that. You I, might not be able to repeat Captured Lightning in a Bottle. I think it's a fair question. I also think that Morgan Stern is going to do it. Like the 13th yep, okay. Tale was one of those big books for people who mm. love books. Um, that thing rode book club selection lists for years. Um, we'll get, we're going to talk about the Starless Sea specifically on another later episode of this show. So I'm going to save my personal take 
on the book for that, but I think it's going to perform very well. Yeah, I think it's going to perform well. I just don't think I'm paying more than I've already paid for the Starless Sea, sort of in cultural mm. capital. I'm, I'm okay. willing to wait it out for the price I've paid. I'm not selling, but I think selling, you could really get burned because it could be a huge hit. Everyone's read it. It looks great. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful gift book to open up on Christmas. Mm-hmm. It's sparkly and it's a wonderful title and I think it'd be entrancing and wonderful to read over the fire. I think I'm buying the Aaron Morgenstern complex because I think people might read this who have never read The Night Circus and then say, oh my God, and go back and pick up The Night Circus mm, and, they, and they're yeah. going to find that enchanting and give that new life. So I think it's a chance to revisit this book that didn't, you know, it hasn't been made into a movie. It hasn't been made into a TV show. I think there are there's a lot of big Night Circus fans out there, but it's not like The Night Circus is To Kill, kill, to kill a Mockingbird. It's not like it's one of these modern classics yet. And so I still think there's a chance for upside for the Night Circus. So if anything, I'd be buying old stock in the Night Circus right now. Interesting. Yeah. I I think that um, having read them both, I think the Starless Sea might be a little bit more filmable than okay. the Night Circus is. I can um, see why the Night Circus hasn't been made into something. It yeah. seems very difficult. The yeah. special effects heavy, let alone, but mm-hmm. like the mood and atmosphere might be just hard to do on film. Yeah. But what do I know about this kind of stuff? <laughs> Anyway. All right. That's our 14. Um, good mix of buy, holds, and sells. It'd be interesting. I think this was really fun. Let us know if you, got, if you think we got any of these wildly wrong or if there's a book. Maybe we'll do follow-up in one of the regular episodes if there's a book that some, a couple, you know, more than one people say, hey, could you give us a buy, sell, hold rating on this other book? Um, we'll see if there's some other ones. We can maybe do some follow-up there, Rebecca. I guess we're going to see what our portfolio looks like in April. We'll see how we did, if we made any money or not. It's going to be interesting. All right. Uh, podcast at bookriot.com. Show notes. You have links to the, the titles we talked today. Uh, bookriot.com slash listen. We'll talk to you guys later. Mm-hmm.